Well, hello again. If you've got a Bible, then do turn with me, please, to Acts 24. We are going to read the whole um, chapter today, but we're going to read it in chunks. Um, so I'll read a little bit and talk about it for a few moments and then, uh, and then carry on through like that. So thanks, Kevin, as well, for, for having it on the screen. And I assume that you're going through the book of Acts at the moment. Is that right? Yes. So, okay, so you're in the context of the, of the narrative there. Um, and it's quite an interesting chapter, chapter 24, because if you're reading the book of Acts through um, almost like a novel, I don't mean to suggest that it's fiction, but you understand what I mean. If you're reading it and you're following the story, then uh, chapter 24 is, is almost quite, uh, uh, what's the word, sort of incidental. It's sort of, it's a chapter that sort of happens as Paul is moving towards, um, towards Rome. So we've obviously had the moment where Paul's been before the Sanhedrin there in Jerusalem. And he appeals to his Roman citizenship, and he's therefore being pushed to Rome. And the, the chapter in 24 where he appears before Felix is a little bit of a damp squib in as much as not really a lot happens. When we read this, because not really a lot happens. In the end, Felix sort of gets a bit bored of the whole situation, sort of lets him go. Um, although it is two years of Paul's life that's there. And before we start reading it and thinking it through, I just want to spend a few moments just reflecting on a word that some of you here will know. And if you don't know the word, by the way, you don't need to know this word. Um, but I think it's a helpful one to define and say a few things about before we start this chapter. And it's a, a word that biblical scholars would use called hermeneutics. And hermeneutics isn't just a, a, a biblical thing. People who are interested in language are interested in hermeneutics. And it's all about either the art or the science, depending on your point of view, of reading. When you come to a text, what are your assumptions about the text? What are you assuming about what's going on? And you can have a hermeneutic of the way you interpret the world as well. And a, a classic hermeneutic that we find in the world at the moment that really energizes a lot of our conversations, and we can bring to the biblical text as well, if we're not careful, is the hermeneutic of the goodies and the baddies, the us and them. Have you noticed how us and them the world is at the moment? In so many ways, look at American politics, how divided American politics is. Very little room for generosity of spirit in the middle. A real us and them. You have a for us or against us. Now, that's not to say there isn't a right or wrong. That's not to say there isn't a truth and a falsehood. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. But this us and them mentality can often inform the way we deal with other people and inform national conversations and debate and inform the way we look at the biblical text. Other good examples at the moment are the us and them mentality around gender issues, which has already been mentioned in today's service. Us and them ten, uh, uh, mentality around men and women. And we, uh, we hear in the news of the tragic circumstances around the death of Sarah Everard and very much the conversation that you'll in the media is about the men that do the murdering and the women who get murdered. I'm not making any, um, any comment there. It's in horrendous circumstances, but very much as an us and them mentality or where it's driven in. And sometimes I think that if you put on a, a stage production, and again, I don't mean that in an irreverent way, but a stage production, particularly of the Gospels, you could very easily have that us and them hermeneutic, for we all would know that when the Pharisee come on the stage, we're supposed to go, ooh, yes. So that's the interpretation we have. 
And what I want to point out here is that it's very easy when we read these characters in uh, Acts 24 to immediately allow, without maybe thinking about it, that us and them mentality to come in. But the way Paul responds to Felix, who is very much them from our point of view, is actually very measured, it's actually very gracious, and it's actually very open to giving them the gospel. Because Paul uses what is a, a pretty awful situation to generously teach this man about Christ. And I want to suggest as we look through this passage that that's a good model for us. Because although we stand for truth, if we allow the way in which we do with other people to be too influenced by us and them, we close down communication. And as Stevie has reminded us this morning, what do we want to use that communication for? For sharing Christ. For sharing Christ. And we see here in Acts 24 a masterclass in that. Paul gives no ground. Paul doesn't, you know, uh, sort of compromise who he is or what he believes. But he gives us a masterclass in not doing the us and them thing and sharing Christ in a situation where he could have heated it up so much. So we're going to read the first four verses. We're going to read it all, but we're going to read the first four verses to start off with. Five days later, the high priest Aeneas went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tetelus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tetelus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, Felix. Find my place again. And your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, he was wearied after all that sucking up, I would request you would be kind enough to hear us briefly. So we've got here the characters on the stage of this portion of the narrative, this portion of the history of what happened in the ministry of Paul. We've got the high priest, we've got the governor, we've got the lawyer. And this is the classic cast that we can immediately let that us and them mentality come in. Whose side are we on? Well, we're on Paul's side, obviously, for Paul is for Christ. And of course we are. And whose side are we not on? Well, we're not on the high priest's side because we know that the, the high priest is not acknowledging that Christ is the Messiah. We're not on the side of the lawyer because we recognize that he's part of this sort of Roman state that is, um, that is trying to squash the message of the gospel. So do we read it with that persecution complex, or do we read it at a deeper level? Do we read it with the, Paul, the words of Paul from Ephesians 6 ringing in our ears, that, friends, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of a spiritual realm. Paul teaches us clearly through the letter of Ephesians that our struggles are not against flesh and blood, but the powers and principalities of a spiritual realm. What about the words of Jesus ringing in our ears? Who is it that needs the doctor? The sick. So yes, we see the lawyer and the governor 
as people here who are on the opposite side of an argument, people in positions of authority which may well be abused, but also as well to look at them with a compassion which says here are people who are spiritually lost, who know not the truth, who know not the freedom that there is in Christ, that the very people who are persecuting require salvation just as did a certain hot-headed young man called Saul. Let's read on a few verses. Verses 5 to 9. We have found this man, talking about Paul, obviously, to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that all of these things were true. It's quite a Sorry, my watch is talking to me. Quiet. It's quite a bold claim, actually, to say to Felix that you examine this and find out all these things to be true, for they be true. And in no way were they true, and in no way does the biblical evidence suggest that they were true. And in fact, Paul is never found guilty of such things because the truth was they, they weren't true. Paul wasn't a troublemaker not in the sense they meant anyway, not in the sense of someone who explicitly went to cause trouble. Things he said may have caused some feathers to be ruffled and more, but that doesn't make him a troublemaker. He was not guilty of starting riots. He certainly was not a temple desecrator. So what actually is going on here? What's the, what's the story behind this? There are a few different potential answers. It's probably the case of a mixture of all of these. One certainly would have been a degree of religious intolerance. One of the contradictions that we have to be aware of uh, and I think live with in our multicultural Western society is that the same rights that give us freedom to openly worship Christ gives anyone else in our society the same freedoms to worship whatever deity they give a name to. In this context here, there was an intolerance. Certainly there were people that were the high priest who were throwing mud at Paul because they found offensive his assertion that Christ was the Messiah. But they were trying to use that to therefore bring false charges against him. And it's one of the reasons why in our society, we need to make sure we stand up for the rights of all people to have religious freedom and liberty. Because if we allow it to be eroded in others, we will find that next, the church will be come for. Maybe it was a spiritual trap. Maybe it was Satan trying to lay some sort of trap so Paul would be finished off here in Caesarea rather than getting to Rome and having the opportunity to uh, place the gospel before the emperor. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was a plot of Satan. Maybe it was just the crowd mentality getting carried away. Verse 9, the Jews joined in the accusation. Yeah, 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 it's true, he did it. I saw him. Well, I say I saw him. My mate saw him. 
Well, my mate's mate saw it. But anyway, yeah, definitely. Maybe it was just that. Crowds do get carried away. So where is Paul in all this? Is he a man in despair, wringing his hands, digging his heels in, getting caught up in the Aston mentality? Well, let's see. Let's read verses 10 to 13. When the governor motioned for him to speak, that's Paul, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been judge all over this nation, so I gladly make my defence. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple, or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues, or anywhere else in the city. Paul seems very confident here that justice will be done. In fact, we know from the book of Acts that Paul had great confidence in many ways and respect well for the Roman system of state. That although, first and foremost, he was, he was uh, Christ's, he also as well remained proudly Jewish, and he also as well remained proudly a Roman citizen and appealed to those rights. And to that degree, he seems to be showing a great deal of confidence in the Roman system of justice. But more than that, as well as appealing to, uh, to Felix for his, um, for his justice to be done, Paul shows a fearlessness because of his faith in God. Why can Paul be so confident? For Paul has this eternal perspective, does he not? Paul knows at the end of the day, he's not actually that concerned about the judgment of man, the judgment of Felix. For he knows what truth is. I've lost my place in my Bible now, I'll find that in a minute. He knows what truth is. He knows what he has done and what he hasn't done. He knows that these charges are untrue. He knows that eventually and ultimately he'll be judged by the measuring stick that is the Lord's and not the Roman state's. And so Paul, respectful, isn't actually that bothered because he knows that he's living right by the standards of God and the standards of the gospel. So Paul does not slip into the us and them mentality. Paul does not start flinging my back and say, no, it's you know, because of you and your crooked way of looking at the world. Paul just states what is and lets it be. But Paul has done some things. And he's about to admit it. Verse 14 to 16. However, I admit, oh, what's he going to admit? That I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. In other words, he believes that the whole of the New Testament points towards Christ. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. And Paul reiterates there his reason for this confidence, for he has a clear uh, conscience before God as well as man. So he hasn't been staring at riots, no. But he has been living out the gospel. 
to his primary accusers, which was the Sanhedrin courts, the, the Jewish um, Sanhedrin, that is an offence. That is offensive and an offence. Paul there calls it the way, the language the church uh, was using for what it means to be a Christian was de developed a few hundred years, indeed, after Christ. It's not that things were added to or, or, or changed, but the, if you like, the jargon that we may use as Christians today took a few hundred years to develop. And so the way is Paul's way of saying, bearing he's got no New Testament to read. In fact, he'd write most of it, um, that he is following the way of Christ. And so Paul's case is simply this. I haven't done these things which you accuse me of, but I'm happy to admit that I have done something which you clearly find offensive and distasteful, and that is to recognize the deity and sovereignty of Christ, not just as an as a abstract thing, but as something that's going to live out in my life. And that has caused some serious offense. And that, my friends, is the red line for Christians. That's our red line. That we do not have a faith that merely talks about a God, or even just God. For many faiths talk about God, but we talk about the God who has revealed himself through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And our Lord Jesus is the only way by which we may approach the Father, for no one comes to the Father except through him, and we have life reborn in the Spirit. And that has caused offense to the Sanhedrin. Now, we cause offence to people with that assertion through different ways today. In the culture and society that we live in, it is not so much saying that Christ is Lord that causes the offence, but that Christ is Lord, and therefore there are certain values that we stand by. And where we are today, it is the assertion of those values that often will cause the offence, but they remain red lines. And Paul is saying, I haven't offended you because I've set out to offend you. I haven't been as Paul, well, I'm putting words in his mouth here, but it's not like Paul's tried to be like some comedians would be. I think, you know, what, like, you may have heard of Frankie Boyle, who might think to himself, what's the most outrageous thing I could say to offend someone? It's not that sort of offence at all. It is like the offence that Martin Luther and the Reformation caused when he said in a very different type of spiritual trial here i am these are my red lines and i don't hold them to offend you i hold them because i stand by the truth of these things that christ is lord risen from the grave he is my savior and 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 so be it and here i stand i can i can do no more and paul is in that sort of situation There's much that can be abstained from in the Christian life, there is much that we can tolerate, for we recognize that the world is different than us. We recognize that. There are things which happen outside of the church which we may find controversial. We may well understand, well, if you don't, if you don't accept Christ as Lord, there's a certain logic to it. But what we can't ever accept is that our assertion that Christ is Lord and to live out the gospel truth is something that can never be run roughshod over. So Paul freely admits this, and guilty as charged, if that's the charge, for that bit ain't changing. And then Paul gets to the real issue, the real issue, 
the details of the issues that I say, 17 to 21, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people books for the poor and to present my offering. I, I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any other disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you to bring charges if they have anything against me. All these who are here should state what crime they found in when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. What does this all mean? It comes down to verse 21. It comes down to verse 21. The thing which these Jewish opponents of Paul found this tasteful was Paul's teaching of the resurrection of the dead. Why? Because Paul was effectively preaching the resurrection of Christ and therefore the resurrection of all who are in Christ. For remember, as Paul said, Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Felix would probably be sitting here looking at this thinking, what on earth is all this about? He's got a Jewish wife, as we'll find out in just a minute. But Felix, as a, as a Roman, would probably think, this is just bonkers, that you, you lot need your heads banging together, that you're splitting hairs over these sort of details. Whereas for the Jewish audience there, they'd be thinking, my goodness, you utter heretic. And Paul was there stuck in the middle of these two things. But again, it remains true for us today that it is the resurrection of Christ that is at the very heart of our faith, and we must never, we must never gain on that. We must never let go of that. We must never reduce our faith to a mere Godism. You believe in God, people may say. Yes, we do. But more than that, there's detail. We believe in God the Father, who has revealed himself to us through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the prophets and the law all point towards him. The Old Testament is written through like a stick of rock with pointing right through the middle, pointing towards Christ. And he is with us by his Holy Spirit for those who have put their faith in him. And one day he will return. And I tell you, has, having a son who plays second cornet in Well City Band, it's not just because the boy's upstairs practicing. The trumpet blast will come. Sometimes you hear upstairs, oh, that's Edward practicing his trumpet. That's all right. It's not the return of the Lord, but one day it will. I had to explain that one, didn't I? I could see a few people looking, what is he on about? Um, that will happen. That's the core of our faith. And just remember this. We are called Christians, Christians. And that name was first given to the believers in Acts as a bit of an insult, actually, because these people were just obsessed with this person, Jesus. It, it wasn't supposed to be an endearing term, but the church went, that's a jolly good name. Judaism is not Davidism or Abrahamism. Could have been. Islam is not Mohammedism. And it could have been. And I don't say any of those things disrespectfully or to insult anybody, particularly if this is on the tape. But for Christians, it is Christians. It is Christians. Christ at the center. For we have rightly this obsession with 
that one who is both God and man, that hypostatic union, the two together, God and man in perfect harmony. We are Christ-centric, and so Christ has risen. And it was at that point that the Sanhedrin were like, we're going to drag this bloke before whoever necessary to get him thrown away. So what was Felix's response? So we've had all the, 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 the bluff and the bluster from the... Um, uh, from the Jewish perspective, and now it's up to the, uh, to the Roman governor to respond. So let's read a few verses in 22 to 23. We're nearly there. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned proceedings. One, when Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and met his friends to take care of his needs. You know, Felix was actually quite good to Paul. He was actually quite good to Paul. Notice what he said. He said, look, we're going to decide on this at some other point, but, you know, make sure he's got some freedom, make sure he's taken care of, make sure he's fed. Actually, let's read on a little bit. Let's read a little bit more, actually. No, leave it there, actually, and I'll read on a minute. No, I do want to read on. Apologies, I've got my notes wrong, sorry. Several days later, when Felix came with his wife, uh, Priscilla, who was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now, you may leave. When you find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Now, this is the classic point at which I want to stress that case. Felix does not fit neatly into the goody or the baddie point of view. Felix is essentially crooked. Because one of the reasons he keeps sending for Paul is thinking at some point this bloke's going to give in and he's going to offer me a few denarii to get off scot-free and it'll all be over. And I'll have a little bit of cash in pocket that the, um, the emperor doesn't know about. It isn't going to be taxed, thank you very much. And also we've had a jolly good chin bag about some interesting theological ideas. But also as well, he was kind to Paul. He was good to Paul. And Paul approaches this rather odd relationship with a real spiritual maturity. Paul refuses to label him as the bad guy. Paul doesn't do the us and them thing. He uses the opportunity to preach Christ. That's what he does. He uses the opportunity to preach Christ. And if Paul had fallen into that trap of driving the wedge and saying, you, the Roman governor, you want to talk to me, I'm going to sit here stunned, mate. We ain't having any chats or conversations or coziness. No. Paul doesn't do it to want to win friends or favours. He wants to win it to he wants to carry on with that relationship for Christ. Felix was a complex person. He heard essentially the gospel. He discoursed with Paul on the gospel. And if Paul had responded tribally, then Felix would never have heard the gospel. Felix fits into the category of Jesus as one of the sick who needs a doctor. And Paul is on hand to provide the medicine around him. When two years, it says in verse 27, when two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, 
But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul's in prison, Paul in prison. See, I told you nothing really happened. In the end, Felix just got you know, replaced by someone else, and that was it. It's a bit of a transitional passage as we're moving towards the great, um, uh, the great trials of Paul. But we see there in that passage a model of a mature Christian response to different points of view. Paul does not fall into tribalism. He does not fear the accusations of society around him, but he simply looks for an opportunity to share the love of Jesus. And as time continues, and with the trajectory that our culture is going at the moment, you will find more and more and more people who hold points of view, who hold lifestyles or live lifestyles, who see the world through prisms and, and, and ways of understanding that you will find increasingly alien. One way to deal with that is to have the us and them. But if we do that, you might ring up a security company and get lots of bars put on the windows, shutters to come down and lock ourselves in and say it's a bit too scary out there. Or we put on the full armour of God. We don't worry about the accusations of the world. And graciously, remember where we came from and that we are clothed in the righteousness that is not our own. We share the love of Christ with whoever is before us. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for portions of your word like this that are are, um, faithful recounts of things that happened in history. And Lord, the times that we live in and the situations that we will find ourselves in are very different in many ways than those that Paul went through. But we do see the parallels in the culture that we live in. We pray that you will give your church, not just this church at Great Parks, although we do pray for that, but your church all over this nation and indeed the Western world, that spiritual maturity to be able to encounter, encounter worldviews that we fundamentally disagree with, but with a, a willingness to engage and to share light and love, and to not to bow the knee to them, but just to confess freely, this is where we stand. We can do no other. But let us share with you the love that we have found in Christ our Lord. For no one comes to the Father except through you, Lord Jesus. We pray for our nation. We pray for the trajectory of it, and we ask, Lord, that your will be done. And um, we trust you for that. And in that spirit, we do say together now the prayer that, Lord Jesus, you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and give us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is thy kingdom, the power and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. God bless each one of you.